Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio chatted with a Marxist venture capitalist, discussed the right's obsession with architecture, all this plus the Trump Diaries, and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for April 20th, 2018. Buildings on Air spoke with David Work about alt-right Twitter's obsession with so-called traditional architecture. How and why have far-right social media users glommed onto the built environment? Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. Uh, David Work is here in the studio with us. David, hello. Hi, Kiefer. Hi, Julia. How's it going? Great. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I've been uh, super excited about... uh, Getting some space to rant, <laughs> and uh, yeah. I hope we can get through uh, a, yeah. a good piece. Of, we there's there's a lot to to digest. But yeah, we'll knock knock a piece off. We're gonna talk so, about what like alt architecture, like alt right, and the, their the, obsession the, with yeah the uh, the the Deus Volts uh, online crowd <sighs> and this kind of like trad yeah. arch fetish um, traditional architecture yeah um, aesthetic fetish that um, you know not not. Others, including myself, have identified as like a corner of the internet where there's, um, you know, some contention going on because because uh, some of these people seem to be there. There are some, you know, traditionalists, revivalists, right. uh, preservationists, etc., that are operating in good faith, mm. and you know, even as experts and professionals. Um, and I think lay people you know, who are aligned yeah. with that are not the ne- Notre Dame School of Architecture. Yeah, are, yeah, are not necessarily like <laughs> yeah. in, in the wrong in any kind of like moral or political sense. So I, I want to get that out of the way. I'm not. We joke a lot about fanaticism, but I, right. don't, I don't think we are no fanatics. Um, but there's a an element that that seems to be kind of using this aesthetic. Um, as in, you know, there are precedents for this in history. You know, you don't have to look very far. Right. As a stocking horse for uh, a sort of xenophobic uh, uh, white supremacist or nativist agenda. Right. And um, coming at this from a a new urbanist perspective, which yeah. which was how I kind of got hooked into architecture in the first place. Right. Um, and I, you know, we won't all sort out some autobiography from analysis hopefully but we all you know everything is lived experience sure you know in material conditions that's yes. the, the root of everything <laughs> um like it, it was like deeply worrying to me um to you know we don't want people who with nefarious motives to be owning territory that that, that yeah that legitimately belongs not well, even just like experts but to right. to everyone yeah you know, because architecture is in in a way that yeah other arts yeah aren't public you know, sure and social in right. its nature yeah well, yeah because you know it's it's funny because I, I I almost have a little bit of our, when we we're first starting to think about the topic and and doing it on the show I almost had a little trepidation about it because like I don't want to give these people airtime but Ditto. this Ditto, but the yeah. same but at the same time um, I think that it's like w- there's there's been a lot of kind of uh, discussion about the, like the the alt-right and their kind of use of media and uh uh their their presence on the internet YouTube and a lot of it yeah is, and a yeah. lot of it's been and a lot of it's been really terrible a lot of it's been a little bit fun some of it's been a little bit funny and some of it has been like good and incisive and uh, but but i think that it's important to talk about it in, in the context of architecture because one of the kind of like um axioms of buildings on air is that like uh archi- architecture is always political we know yes. that but buildings don't do politics right like right. people do politics and that's part of the misunderstanding <laughs> yeah. that, that's going on i think not not just with um you know the kind of opposition or, or the problematic right. people accounts we've laid out and we'll start naming names here <laughs> a couple of them because we yeah. have to have to as the instigators sure um uh but th- there are are kind of misunderstandings of the scope and limitations of the profession, yeah. Um, both outside and in, right? right? Which is something that, as as you know, full disclosure, members of the architecture lobby is, yeah. is a concern that that we you know share with you know many of our mufos, and we discuss you know um, kind of openly and earnestly, right? Um, and and uh, you know we want to keep that discourse healthy, sure. 
Um, so let, let's talk about uh, why modern architecture sucks. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, just finished watching a Paul Joseph Watson video, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm a convert. We need some we like need to, we need some sound effects like scraping, uh, to, like, scraping some, steel like, or glass, glass yeah, noises, or shattering glass. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm yeah. Let's let's. Uh, yeah, I'm a convert. Paul Joseph Watson has convinced me we need to... David's uh, doing an irony, if you don't know. We're going to nuke Poundbury, and uh, we're going to glass it, and we're going to build a tower out of the shards of glass, and it will, it will be a, the, the beautiful, universal, human environment of the future. Um, we, we will erase the past and part from it entirely and leave the ground, you know, starting, starting with Mars. But no, um, so th- th- this was... I, I saw this video posted. You know, yeah. he, he like put up a you know a grab or a link on on Twitter a while back, and, and you know I capped it in my you know hot take without even looking because I know of, of Watson's. For those who don't know, he is part of the Infowars uh, yeah. media network, which is uh, a. a, a, a huckster outfit for that's basically for right-wing conspiracy 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 theorists and the conspiratorial mindset is is a really like key element of this that you know we can uh talk about a a little bit because there there are elements of it that are you know you know resonant or you know it's scary to me because it's a a something that's so close because Mm. because i think a big part of the reason that these people including the i mean the, the latest one who's who's made headlines uh, like Jordan Peterson, the, the, mm. this reactionary current has um, such a big audience or is finding such like fertile ground it is because of the um, uncertainty, you know, the, the instability, the angst of, of the, the times that we live in. Right. And people are looking for security. They're looking for explanations. Right. They want stability. They want order. And um, if you don't, want or need to be too critical or intellectual or work too much at it, you know, a kind of easy narrative of, you know, I'm at a loss because somebody else got mine is – Right, you know, and and then the question is, who do you blame? Right. Who do you blame? And, and or or this idea of yeah. like even like the kind of like pan pan European like oh, I- identity. The, yeah, the identity politics of the which is like totally yeah. a historical and 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 wrong, but and, but, and and also glosses over the the thousands of years of tribal murder, right? And and, and you know the the violence and exploitation that that. Yeah, Under, underpin feudalism, right? Um, but it's also, but it, there's uh, this part of it that's kind of like uh, if accidentally communist, or like almost like reaching an insight uh, or an understanding of like what is the kind of trouble, and it's it's not as it, some somebody referenced, uh, I think just before, uh, it's political economy it's not technology right so when we talk about building materials building methods uh the the culture of architecture and studio that's what that's that's the business of it right the field of the field of mass production or commercial practice is something that's in a way only um tangentially connected with the the media image or construction of capital a architecture right which, which is uh, a problematic element of the, of the discipline that, sure. that we've also had conversations right. about. Right. Well, and, and it leads these folks to, to say some really silly things where, like, you know, they um, – they're – the photos that they kind of post of traditional buildings are like they're always like if a, they're either really bad traditional buildings or it's like you know one one uh, one thing that I always see like you know tweeted back in, in kind of response from from our side to theirs <laughs> if you will uh, is is uh, you know the kind of fact that like hey all of these like neoclassical elements that you know you love so much like they're like carved from foam and like painted like painted and faux finish to look like stone like and and like this it's it's all like a kind of aesthetic uh trapping and like right. but but that that but doesn't with, really matter with, without, without even getting yeah. into the the question of, of like material honesty right sure which is which is uh, i would say a, a design 
culture so, sort of fixation that isn't necessarily relevant to a layperson. Right. Lo, you know, looking yeah. from the outside, it's a matter again of of material production. Like right. what, what architects in any environment, anybody who builds, yeah. you know, in, in cultures and societies, they use the materials at hand. Right. And the, so, what a lot of what's going on here. Um, is a mixing up of cause and effect, mm. right? Or 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 misattributing the effect to to wrong cause, making it about ideology when when it's again it's about economy, right? Like one of the things, the, one of the linchpins of this, um, you know, kind of uh, fixation that I happen to share really is the, the questioning of like, well, uh, what happened to ornament? Mm. To, well, it, it, and if you know a bit of architectural history, you understand that that in the 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 last era when when there there was kind of extensive sort of routine ornamentation mm-hmm. of of um of any significant work even down to like kind of bog standard you know commercial buildings there was a massive industry right. of of industrial mass production that that, that, was, that was cranking out tons yeah. of the stuff that you could order from a catalog much as you would a, a, a curtain wall assembly Today and the the choices available to the designers of the time are based largely in part on what is what is industry right. what what is capital producing sure. or making of of base materials yeah. for people to yeah. work with what, what paradigm do we operate in? I-94 spoke with Jim Gower, author of Novel Explosives, out now from Zerogram. A self-described Marxist venture capitalist, Gower discussed Thomas Pynchon's work, his fear of being found out as an arms fraud, and humor in literature. This excerpt contains a passage from his work with music from Dos Santos. Raymond and Jean were getting mentally prepared to head out of Roberto's and back to the Magnum a Viper-powered variant of the Dodge Ram flatbed that sits parked at the head of an unmarked side street directly across from the double-door entrance to a reinforced concrete smoke-glass office tower. A building that even now was slowly refilling with the hard-working minions of penny-shaved SA and pauper labor ink and remorseless flows of bottom-feeder Capital Unlimited, most of whom, in turn, were getting mentally prepared to head out of Juarez and onto Guangxi where a vast pool of legals out of Vietnam and Cambodia have long ago hit bottom and are prepared to work for nothing and live on thin air. The accountants and number crunchers for the local maquiladoras were returning from a good long lunch in Juarez, looking a little buzzed on margaritas and camarones from Mariscos de Mazatlan, or maybe bourbon and T-bones from El Herradero, or Qingdao's and sweet and sour from restaurant Shangri-La, with their suits over their shoulders and collars suddenly unbuttoned, and their half-Windsor neckties ever so slightly askew. The next indicated action for the inventory masters was to kill an hour or two in their spreadsheet cubicles, digesting these massive meals that had cost as much in two hours as the girls on the maquila lines made in a month, before heading home to their subdivision colonials in friendly old El Paso, and their well-groomed wives and 1.8 children and their smiles all around, Honey, how was your day? Meanwhile, some 14-year-old kid in a tin roof shack in Colonia de Anapra, with six brothers and sisters and an absence of any sort of semblance of plumbing, was preparing for a shift from 4 p.m. to midnight, inserting shot key rectifiers into PCBs for power supplies that would wind up eventually, an hour or two later, in a host of enormous plasma TV screens, ideal for the recreation room of your five-bedroom duplicate of a replicant colonial. At this very minute, Having swept the dirt floor and washed the dishes in a drainage ditch and hung up the laundry, she is putting on her uniform and eight straight-hour shoes, getting ready for the dusty walk from her home made of packing crates and garbage dump selvage to her bus stop in the Colonia. An easy, though frequently deadly, 20-minute walk where the bus will pick her up and drop her in the city center, perhaps an hour or so later, where maybe she'll find her rickety white ride to the Maquilla, or maybe she'll find three strangers in an ominous black suburban. 
If she somehow makes it home alive, long past midnight, spelling her way along, under garbage-light stars of the barrio cosmos, past the angel-dusted street thugs and K-hold narco ninos and buzz-bombed orphans sniffing turpentine cans, waving armalite analog river rock carbines, she'll have earned enough rapidly shrinking Mexican currency for almost a gallon of real whole milk. Or maybe a down payment on a burlap sack of pinto beans, or nearly two cans of stewed tomatoes, unless, of course, she's saving up her pay for tomorrow's 70 cent round trip to the Maquila. Two of her sisters will have already left for their midnight shift at the Sylvania plant, located on Calle Fulton in the immaculate Parque Industrial A J Bermuda's assembly plant, where they too will work their way through the mind-deadening night of what the hell is this electronic componentry. Having something to do with silicon-controlled rectifiers, having something to do with dimmers for lighting fixtures, having something to do eventually with something to do with light bulbs, which while well out of reach and abundantly scarce for a family of nine in packing crate housing, are powered by the modern miracle of pure electricity. And that was a reading from Jim Gower's novel, Explosives, uh, kind of giving you a sense of the, I guess, the milieu around Ciudad Juarez and uh, the people working the maquiladores and the factories. Jim, can you take us through a little bit of why you actually chose to set your book in this in this area? The book largely revolves around the USA and, and Mexico and the drug cartels, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah, well, I guess um, Juarez itself is... Um, it, particularly during the time I was writing the book, was one of the main centers of the war on drugs and was also a central place where American capitalism was um, being served by the assembly plants that put together modern electronics. I had an investment in a company, all of whose, that did DSL routers, so high-speed internet connections, that actually had all of its assembly done in the Maquilas. So, um, you know, it's, it's a center for a lot of things that intersect. Um, the globalization, which has um, impoverished, among other things, something like 15 million Mexican corn growers that led to this vast migration to the north to work in the maquila plants and left because most of the maquiladoras employ primarily women because they're, they're much more nimble at working with small parts, and I suppose because in the Mexican culture they're much, much more docile, at least in theory. And in any case, it's left a sort of large pool of macho men without much employment, and this in turn fed the troops of the drug cartels that were importing drugs for consumption here in the U.S. I mean, I hope I make it clear that I don't believe Mexico is responsible for much of any of this. This is U.S. consumption. And so Juarez was, it's a frightening place. Uh, my time doing research there was there were two truly frightening periods while I was doing research. One was doing the research on the ground in Mares and actually going to the places where all the bodies are buried, the, the death houses, as they're called. Jesus. Uh, you you know, Middle-class neighborhoods where the drug lords would buy up houses and use them primarily to bury bodies, you know, 42 bodies came out of one, one backyard in this neighborhood that I wandered around in, and, and then going out to Colonia de Anapra, which is a vast 40,000 people barrio that's 
just incredibly impoverished. And um, so it was a, a place with a, a very weird energy on top of it. So there's all the, the vast wealth that you can see and all of the consumerism that we pride ourselves on in, in America, the impoverishment of people under global capital and the drug war being fought with a high degree of stupidity by the United States. All of these kind of converge in Juarez, and so that's where it was set. Jim, I, I have to ask, you say you were, you were just wandering around this neighborhood in Juarez. Did, did you just drive over or book a ticket and head yeah. around solo, or did you have somebody accompanying you? Now, you know, the theory was I, my wife and I went down, checked into a, a Ramada Inn or something in <laughs> El Paso, and I was talking to the woman at the reception desk at the Ramada, telling her I was, you know, planning to spend some time in Juarez, and what did she recommend? And her first recommendation was stay out of there. And then the next recommendation, which actually gets into the book, is when you get to the other side of the Stanton Street Bridge, you should find an information booth that has maps of Juarez, because the rental car maps don't have anything on them. And uh, so drive across the bridge, stop at the information booth, and um, there may be a college student there who could help guide you around Juarez. <clears throat> so what happens in the book is uh, our venture capitalist, affectionately known as douchebag to the people who are chasing him for his sort of stupidity in wandering around Juarez, much like my stupidity in wandering <laughs> around Juarez, um, gets to the other side of the, of the Stan Street Bridge and finds uh, like an armored brigade uh, which is literally what I was faced with. Uh, I mean, machine guns, 50 caliber machine guns set up on Jeeps and uh, 50 or 60 guys waving automatic weapons. And uh, there may have been an information booth there, but I certainly didn't see it. And I was just sort of waved on into Juarez. And if you know that, the other side of the Sand Street Bridge are about seven streets that all converge there, and I was just sort of plunged into Juarez with no map, no guide, no nothing, other than that I had studied Juarez so much that it was probably lucky that I didn't have a map because I would have been having to stop to refer to the map. I had a sort of mental map of the of the place, and so I could recognize where I was by this sort of mental map that I had. And yeah, so <clears throat> you know, I I could find what's called the Cuernavaca subdivision, which is where the death houses are. And um, you know, the only other instruction once the woman at the Ramada had told me not to go there was don't stop at any stoplights or stop signs you know just keep driving because there's been a lot of kidnappings and so yeah i i broke a lot of laws while i was down there but uh, uh and my wife wasn't too happy about the whole research collection but yeah. I, I made a few of these trips nice now, vacation mind, jim Excuse me? That's a nice vacation for your wife, Jim. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> she was safe and sound in El Paso, oh, which, okay. by the way, is one of the lowest crime cities in the U.S. I mean, it's it's very uh, quiet and peaceful because the, yeah, the mayor drug was guys just have no NPO. interest at all yeah. in spreading violence north of the border and right. attracting attention. <laughs> Oh, floors. 
Real sticky. Did someone leave the gas on? Nope. Weird. Hey, bud. Morning. Two things. One, have you seen my audio recorder? No, not yet. Coffee before cleaning. Mm, coffee sounds good. I'm sure the recorder will turn up. Help yourself. Man, we went late last night. What was the second thing? Is that your car on fire outside? Nope. Never seen it before. <sighs> hey guys, is the uh, is the stove on? It smells like burning. That's here. the first thing I checked. It's it's actually that there's a car on fire outside. Huh. Oh, that your car, Jess? Is Jesse Jess? I saw a ghost, and I think we should go catch it. We have been over this, Kyle. I, Do you want some coffee? Uh, thanks, but no, the caffeine makes me jittery and paranoid. <laughs> Did you guys have a party last night and not invite me? Um. Oh, no. Uh, this is an art installation uh, about today's socio-political climate. So why is she cleaning it up, then? Women have to lead the way, Kyle. Yeah, right, okay. Historically speaking, the car out front's got about five minutes until the fire hits the gas tank. So if and if it's any of yours, you know, we should start filling buckets. No, not me. Nope. Okay, so Jess, it's real late. I'm out back at Ed's Potstickers talking to this guy who sort of works there, when all of a sudden... I feel this spiritual Holy hand. crap, there's a car on fire outside. No! Well, did you call the fire department? Oh, yeah. Right, yeah, right, we, we should have right. done that. We, we should have, definitely. This week on The Trump Diaries... It's all-out war between Trump and Comey. Trump attacks Syria and brags, mission accomplished. The Cohen raid raises the stakes with revelations that he taped conversations. Scott Pruitt is found to have broken the law. And the Democrats' advantage on the generic ballot begins to shrink. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 448, April 12th. James Comey offered explosive details about Trump in a new book that dominated the week's headlines. Former FBI director, whose book has been called persuasive and compelling by reviewers, says Trump was obsessed with the Steele dossier, particularly a portion on prostitutes who claimed they had urinated on a bed once stayed in by the Obamas in Russia. Trump asked Comey four times to investigate the, quote, golden showers thing and prove it was a lie in January 2017 so he could supposedly lift the cloud because it upset Melania Trump. Russia is said to have a tape of the incident and maybe blackmailing Trump. Trump is purchasing digital advertising, calling Comey Lion Comey in an attempt to undermine his credibility. Trump is also preparing an attack on Justice Department No. 2, Rod Rosenstein, who signed off on the Russia investigation and on the search and seizure of Trump's lawyer's office. Trump is likely to try and fire Rosenstein. A Trump confidant said that attempt is likely to set off a cascade of resignations. The source said, quote, a guy leaning on a broom is likely to be the one to fire Rosenstein. And Trump ordered the Justice Department to hire Ezra Cohen-Watnick. Cohen-Watnick was fired from his previous job at the White House after he improperly gave classified documents to Devin Nunes. Nunes used those documents to mount a defense of Trump in the highly partisan House investigation over Russian interference into the 2016 election. And the FBI seized all records from Michael Cohen's office relating to the Access Hollywood tape. That tape caught Trump bragging to Billy Bush about grabbing women by the, well, you know what. The raid on Cohen's office is being seen by Trump's advisors as a major and more imminent threat to the president than even the special counsel's investigation. And in a related story, Elliot Broidy, a major donor with ties to the White House, resigned as deputy finance chairman of the Republican National Committee. Broidy had agreed to pay $1.6 million to a former mistress, a pregnant Playboy playmate, to stay quiet about their affair. She later had an abortion. Cohen arranged that deal for Broidy. And a federal judicial nominee refused to say whether or not she agreed with Brown versus Board of Education. That landmark decision desegregated U.S. public schools. Wendy Vitter, a prominent pro-life activist, also claimed she would enforce Roe versus Wade as a judge. An EPA whistleblower has provided Congress with what is said to be a detailed and documented list of unethical and potentially illegal spending by EPA head Scott Pruitt. Pruitt has spent $3 million of taxpayer money on first-class flights and unnecessary security. And the White House is considering allowing states to drug test food stamp recipients. About 5% of the recipients in SNAP, the food stamp program, could be affected. 
day 449, April 13th. Trump attacked James Comey on Twitter, calling him a weak and untruthful slimeball who deserved to be fired for the terrible job he did. Comey is a proven leaker and liar, and it was my great honor to fire James Comey. Trump would continue to tweet about Comey all weekend, calling him a slimeball twice. The Justice Department Inspector General released a withering report that said former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe lacked candor on four occasions involving leaks to a newspaper. McCabe has released a point-by-point rebuttal of the report and denies it. Trump tweeted that the report is, quote, a total disaster. He lied, lied, lied. McCabe was totally controlled by Comey. McCabe is Comey. No collusion, all made up by this den of thieves and lowlifes. Rod Rosenstein has told colleagues he expects to be fired. He also claims that there are more details behind the firing of James Comey that have been made public, and that he was correct to do so. Trump's aides are worried that Cohen, known to tape conversation, has allowed tapes to fall into FBI hands. The far-reaching corruption investigation of Cohen, believed to have been started on a tip from Robert Mueller, is investigating possible bank fraud and illegal campaign contributions. Cohen, who also owns a string of taxi medallions here in Chicago, apparently has been under criminal investigation and surveillance for some months. Cohen and a new lawyer for Trump requested an emergency temporary restraining order in an attempt to prevent prosecutors from looking at the material seized in those raids. They argued that Trump has, quote, an acute interest in this matter because some of the materials are protected by attorney-client privilege. No ruling has yet been issued on that request. The New Yorker published a story about American media that said it paid $30,000 to a former Trump doorman who claimed that Trump fathered a child with an employee in the 1980s at Trump World Tower. AMI is the same company that also bought and killed a similar story involving playmate Karen McDougal. And Trump pardoned Scooter Libby, who had long been a conservative cause celebre. Libby, who was Vice President Dick Cheney's chief of staff, was convicted of perjury in connection with the leak of the name of Valerie Plain, a former CIA officer. George W. Bush commuted Libby's sentence but refused to pardon him back in 2007. FCC Chairman I.G. Pais requested a request from a dozen senators to investigate Sinclair Broadcast Group for, quote, distorting news coverage. Sinclair forced anchors to read a scripted promo warning of fake news and media bias. Sinclair is also attempting to purchase the Tribune Company in Chicago. And an appointee to Health and Human Services shared a meme that said, quote, our forefathers would have hung Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton for treason. Day 450, April 14th. England, France, and the United States launched 100 missile strikes at Syria. Those strikes, which the Pentagon said struck at the heart of Syria's suspected chemical weapons plants. Trump claimed this was the beginning of a sustained effort to force Bashar Assad to stop using banned weapons. Instead, it was only a limited one-night operation that hit three targets. In Syria, the attack was seen as something of a positive, as it indicated the United States is unwilling to be drawn further into the complex civil war in that nation. The Russian ambassador to the United States warned of consequences for the Allied attacks, but an attempt to force a United Nations resolution of condemnation was rejected. Trump also was supposed to order more sanctions against 27 Russians with ties to Syria's chemical weapons program, this according to UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. And a report says that Republican donor Rebecca Mercer personally lobbied Facebook to lift a ban on Cambridge Analytica. Mercer's father invested $15 million in Cambridge Analytica and are major donors to Donald Trump. CA was banned from Facebook after it scraped 87 million users' data from Facebook without permission. And Trump is seeking expanded executive powers using an obscure case before the SEC. Trump Solicitor General Noel Francisco intervened in a minor case to urge the Supreme Court to clarify the president's constitutional, quote, power to oversee executive officers through removal. That would allow Trump executive power over all officers of the United States who exercise significant authority. In other words, a change in that law would allow him to legally fire Robert Mueller. Day 451, April 15th. Former FBI Director James Comey blasted Trump on ABC Sunday night in a searing interview that portrayed the president as an unethical serial liar who threatens the nation. Comey, who has been repeatedly attacked by Trump, calls his presidency a stain, a grave and present danger, and says Trump is clearly vulnerable to Russian blackmail. Trump responded on Twitter with a stream of invective, saying that Comey is not smart, a self-serving liar, who deserves jail for being the worst FBI director in history so far. Trump also added, I never asked Comey for personal loyalty and claimed Comey had committed many crimes, none of which he specified. Trump has collected $20 million in campaign donations during the first three months of the year. The total haul for Trump's 2020 campaign is nearly up $8 million, or 65% from the operation's fundraising the previous quarter. So far, Trump has $28 million on hand, which is an unusual amount for a sitting president in just his second year. 
Tim Kaine said he would oppose Mike Pompeo's nomination to Secretary of State. Two other committee members also say they will oppose the current CIA director's confirmation out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Even if Pompeo's nomination stalls in that committee, however, the Republican Party could force a floor vote. Day 452, April 16th. Fox commentator and key Trump mouthpiece Sean Hannity has been revealed as a client of Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen. The revelation came during a court appearance for Cohen, who was attempting to keep the FBI from reviewing materials they seized in a raid on his home, hotel, and office. Cohen's lawyer also tried to conceal Hannity's name, arguing that revealing it would be embarrassing to him to be identified as a client of Cohen's. Judge Kimba Wood agreed that embarrassment was not a sufficient legal argument. The judge also rejected an attempt by Trump and Cohen to block prosecutors from reviewing the material seized in the FBI raids last week on Cohen's office. Also in a dramatic courtroom confrontation, Stormy Daniels appeared at that court hearing. Daniels is suing Cohen over a non-disclosure agreement he negotiated on behalf of Trump. And the Government Office of Accountability found that EPA head Scott Pruitt violated federal spending laws by installing a $43,000 soundproof phone booth in his office. No other EPA head has ever had such a booth installed. Pruitt was also found in violation of other laws because the EPA is obligated to appropriate funds in a matter specifically allowed by law. It's unclear what punishment Pruitt will face. Trump accused China and Russia of improperly manipulating their currencies, contradicting a report issued by his own Treasury Department. Russia and China are playing the currency devaluation game as the U.S. keeps rising interest rates, according to Trump on Twitter. Not acceptable. In fact, his Treasury found that China's currency had recently moved in a direction that should benefit U.S. exporters. Day 453, April 17th. Trump rejected a fresh round of sanctions that was set to be imposed on Russia. Nikki Haley had announced that the administration would place sanctions on Russian companies found to be assisting serious chemical weapons program. But the White House said Monday Trump had not approved additional measures. Spokesperson Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, quote, the president has been clear he's going to be tough on Russia, but at the same time, he'd still like to have a good relationship with them. And federal judge Kimba Wood indicated she may appoint an outside attorney known as a special master to assess the records seized from Cohen's office. So-called taint teams and special masters are used in specific cases to avoid the appearance of bias. And the Trump campaign paid $66,000 to Keith Schiller's lawyer. Schiller is Trump's longtime bodyguard for reasons that remain unclear. Schiller left his White House job in September. Schiller once testified that someone had made an offer to send five women to Trump's hotel room in Moscow during the 2013 Miss Universe pageant. He said the women never entered. And Fox News pledged full support of Sean Hannity after it was revealed he had an informal relationship with Michael Cohen in his own words. In a statement, the network said it was, quote, surprised by the announcement in court yesterday. In another development, two other lawyers with connections to Trump have also represented Hannity, Jay Suclow and Victoria Tensing. Suclow is representing Trump in Mueller's inquiry. The Senate will not take up legislation that would affect Trump's ability to fire Robert Mueller. Mitch McConnell said in a statement, quote, I'm the one who decides what we take to the floor. That's my responsibility as the majority leader, and we will not be having this on the floor of the Senate. Day 454, April 18th. The Associated Press is reporting that North and South Korea are set to announce an official end to their 68-year war. The breakthrough would end the truce forged in the 1950-1953 Korean conflict. Trump's administration is already engaged in high-level direct talks with North Korea. Trump is set for a face-to-face -face meeting with Kim Jong-un in June. CIA Director Mike Pompeo has been involved in those talks. Trump reversed course again on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, casting doubt he would rejoin in a tweet. Instead, he called for bilateral deals. And U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley fired back at the White House after it said she was confused about new sanctions on Russia. Haley had announced those sanctions on the U.N. floor. Trump was reportedly furious at Haley's statement on TV, leading advisor Larry Kudlow to say she was, quote, maybe momentarily confused. Haley fired back that she doesn't get confused. The spat revealed how much Haley has been hung out to dry at the White House, despite being the United States' top diplomat at the moment. Politico also reports that Trump had signed off on those sanctions. And a woman has told the Daily Mail and provided photographic evidence that she had an affair with Donald Trump while Trump's second wife, Marla Maples, was pregnant. Barbara Moore, a former Playboy playmate and bit actress, showed photos of her time at Mar-a-Lago in 1993, which are time-stamped that showed she was at least in proximity to Trump at the time. She was named in Karen McDougal's lawsuit against Trump. And Trump finally tweeted about Stormy Daniels after the porn star released a composite sketch of the man she says threatened her in a parking lot at the behest of Trump lawyer Michael Cohen. Trump tweeted, quote, a sketch years later about a non-existent man, a total con job playing the fake news media for fools, but they know it. 
The tweet will likely be used in Daniel's legal case. And Democrats have slumped on the generic ballot from a 12-point advantage to just four points. Trump remains the most unpopular president ever in modern times, but Republican generic candidates have been buoyed by the strong economy. These are the Trump Diaries. Nancy Clem spoke to Nicole Garneau, an interdisciplinary artist. Garneau spoke about her new book, Performing Revolutionary, a manual for site-specific public actions and ceremonies. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs the second Monday of every month at noon. Hello, Nicole. I'm so happy you're with uh, me today. Welcome to Spontaneous Vegetation. Hello, Nancy. It's super (laughs) nice to see you and be here today. Thank you. You have moved from working in art spaces to um, art and theater spaces and entering the streets now, um, wherever you live or travel to, because you're a little itinerant right now about your location. I'm curious about how, what was that move of you um, deciding to take your work to an increasingly public space? What, What started shifting for you? Well, I have a background in theater and worked as an actor and then also made work, you know, performances, performance art in um, performance spaces, many of which were in Chicago. I think that one of my first public performance experiences was with Insight Arts in the 90s, and we did an outdoor public action against the death penalty We also performed in the um, Chicago History Museum. We did this kind of activist performance. And in that one, it was a collaboration with all these young people who were working with Insight Arts. And I think our youngest collaborator was eight years old. So I got interested in making work in public space. Also, I had been an activist. So being on the streets, like doing an anti-war march or something, that was very natural. And so there was also, I kind of understood something about the just having a body on the street doing something. Mm-hmm. And then when in 2005, I decided to make this project called Hito 5, where I was interested in remembering 10 years since the Chicago heat wave disaster. And I thought for a year, I would perform every day. And every day, I would just remember the Chicago heat wave disaster and make work kind of inspired by this heat wave. And when I started in January 2005, I just went to every open mic and I, well, it's January in Chicago. So you try to find indoor spaces to do things. (laughs) But then I realized I just ran out of places to do things. And I was like, well, I'm just going to go make a performance outside. I'm going to go to the lake and see what happens. And just, it it kind of was the four, that discipline forced me to be outside. And then I just got really curious and interested in it because it felt, I don't know, alive or something. And I felt... I was interested in how you do things for whoever is around. It pushes you as a performer, too, because you're not necessarily being watched and you don't necessarily know how to play to your audience. I mean, they don't expect you to be doing anything. And so when you start performing, other than just performing, walking down the street, that um, there's a shift. And I, I know as a performer that I'm always reading my audience as I'm performing at the same time. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of uh, creative tension or what that calls out for you? Especially when I'm working in public, I have some ethics around doing that, which is that I try not to do things that are going to be hurtful or disturbing to people as performance art. Now, everyone gets to decide how they interpret anything, but um, I purposely – I feel like if you're just a person walking on the street – there, you are not inviting being assaulted by performance art. <laughs> so if you're just a person, then maybe if I'm offering something or I'm making a performance, maybe that could be gentle. And maybe if I want to interact with you, that interaction could also be gentle, inviting, non-assaulting. Generous. Generous. Exactly. Compassionate, listening. So if there is something that requires interaction, those are the kinds of ways that I'm trying to think through. What is the invitation here? What do I want from people? And how am I hoping that they're going to receive this in a way that's um, perhaps even pleasant? 
Mm-hmm. So it, that we could build a, I want to build a culture, a public culture of art and performance making where people actually welcome unusual things happening on the street. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> it would be a lot more fun. Okay. <laughs> Well, great. And then let's let's go into talking about this new book you just wrote, um, Performing Revolutionary Art, Action, and Activism. It is so exciting, and I finally got my copy because you brought it to the studio, and I can't wait to read it. Um, it, it and in full, instead of trying to cruise through a PDF online. Um, so let's talk about the fact that you wrote this book. I believe 10 years after you completed this project called Uprising, which was, let me see if I get this right, 60 performances over five years. So once a month, you uh, did something with not just yourself, but you'd invite others to join you. And then there would be various locations, a lot of them in Chicago, Chicago. some of them in other parts of the United States and actually some of them abroad as well. Um, I'm interested in the fact that I would think that most people would think, why would it take you 10 years after the fact to write a book? But I also think there was something interesting about having 10 years to reflect on that practice. And I'm wondering if that 10 years of, of reflection helped you understand that you actually had a new... I don't even want to, it's new, but you had innovated a form or an approach um, called what does it mean to create an uprising? Um, So would you agree to that then, that 10 years kind of helping you in that? Yes, definitely. And when I started the project in 2000, in January of 2008, I really only thought of it as a performance project. And I wanted to practice, uh, I wanted to make performances that would be, that I considered public demonstrations of revolutionary practices. I was interested in world building. I was interested in having a positive vision of the world we actually want to live in instead of just protesting things. And so I thought, well, I'm going to structure these performances and they're all going to focus on ways that we can practice being more revolutionary people and by we I mean myself also because I'm trained first and foremost training myself to be a more revolutionary person and then inviting people along if they care to play and then um but I didn't but I did start writing about every uprising in January 2008. And the reason I started writing about them is because the only support, financial support I really had for this project, because there was like no ticket revenue and no legitimate way to get any support for it, was that I wrote these postcards after every uprising performance. So I had to, I had a discipline where I was forced to write one good paragraph about each of the performances and make a color photo, uh, postcard and then I sent them out to people who subscribed for money and supported the project. So what happened was that when I finished five years, I at least had one good paragraph about every (laughs) uprising. And I only because of that did I even think about turning it into a book. Because if I had gotten to 2012 and then had to remember what had happened in 2008, it never would have happened. So then I've got this whole bulk of documentation. And then I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe I can work on this as a book, which I thought I could just knock out in a year. Turns out books take longer. Learned an important thing about that. Mm -hmm. So that took about really start to finish. That took another five years. So here we are with this release of the book, which coincides with 10 years since the start of the uprising project. But you're right that it did take 10 years. It's 10 years of work. Color Card piled into Studio C for a John Daly session, which debuted this week. The John Daly sessions air Tuesday at 5 p.m.
Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.